0: Glad that you're here. Let me introduce the message just a little bit before I delve into it this morning. Now, this is one of those tough passages. There, there are a number of these in Scripture. The sort of passages that I guess, if we were just picking favorite passages, favorite texts to preach, this is probably not one of them, unless we were trying to push some sort of angle. This is one of those that uh, maybe some of you in this room have had occasion to have to defend to someone who's cynical or skeptical about the Bible. This is one of those passages that, well, to be, to be blunt, I guess, doesn't resonate with 21st century sensibilities, whatever those are. And so you're going to be challenged today to reconcile what you think, what you feel with what the Scripture says and who God is in Scripture. And as you do that, you're going to have to evaluate not only what you think about God and His nature and character and activities in the world, but also what you think about the church. What does the church really And what's the church really for? And how much does God care about its purity or its holiness? And you're also going to have to look deeply into your own life. At least if you respond rightly to the text, you'll have to. Because it it forces the issue of self-evaluation, of introspection. The legitimacy, the integrity of, of my own life. The honesty of my own life. Because it's easier to, to pretend sometimes than it is to be real. And if you've been in church very long at all, even as you heard in Patrick's testimony, you know the game and you know the lingo, you know the expectations, you know how to carry yourself, you know how to answer in a certain way, you know how to look a certain way and respond in a certain way that would, that would get you a pass. But as you heard at the beginning of the service today, God cares about our hearts it's our hearts that he looks at, not just when we worship, but when we breathe. It's our hearts that God wants today. It's our hearts that God cares about. So with that in mind, I want to pray. Father, today, spare us, I pray, from going through the motions. Lord, I pray that would just not be possible. Lord, I pray for confrontation today, not me being confrontational necessarily, Father, but Your Holy Spirit confronting us with the truth, with ourselves, with You. Lord, I pray we have a clear sense of what our right response to that would be. For real worship has not begun until we respond to You. Until we do what Your Word says. Until we live in such a way that says You are God. We're your children. So Father, I pray you'd make the text clear. Spare me from muddying it up. and Father, show us what you'd have us to do with it so we might be doers of the word, not hearers only. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's the scenario. We're in the book of Acts. We're still early on. We're still in the first handful of chapters, first five chapters of the book of Acts. And now the church has blown up. And I mean that in a good way. I mean, this thing is exploding with growth. Um, starting off with just a, a, a several hundred people believing. Now you're up into the thousands by now. And the church is blossoming. Miracles are happening, and many people are coming to the faith. And, and the whole thing is really beginning to just take off. But here's what you've got to understand. And this is a reality in the first century, and it is just as much a reality in the 21st century. We have a spiritual enemy, there is such a thing as spiritual warfare. And when the true church rises up in the right ways and begins to do the things that God wants wants it to do and when people become who God wants them to become and when people's lives are being changed and people are getting saved and they're getting delivered from darkness into light, Satan is going to push back. He's going to push back. And that's what we begin to see in the book of Acts in chapter 5. Satan now is pushing back against the tide. You've got the battle of two kingdoms. You've got the kingdom of this world. The ruler of that kingdom, Satan, whether people acknowledge him or not, whether people mock or ridicule the idea of a demonic entity, a satanic entity, a spiritual entity, does not change the reality of spiritual conflict. And Satan holds tightly to the ground that he believes is his and to those that are in his kingdom. And so when that kingdom begins to be threatened and when people begin to be rescued from that dark kingdom... He fights back, and he fights back hard. And that's what's happening in the text. Immediately after Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falls on the church. Miracles are being done. As I said, thousands are now coming to Christ. What happens immediately after these signs and wonders and proclamations of the gospel? After Pentecost, persecution. Immediately. Like a predictable tide, the church rises up, Satan tries to rise up in response to it. And now persecution comes. Threats are made. Incarceration happens. And the church is faced with a crucible, a moment of decision. What will we do? Will fear of man hinder us, stop us in our tracks? Or will we persevere in this mission that God has given us? Will we be bold? Will we be faithful? Will we endure persecution? And so they begin to pray. When does Satan typically rise up in your life? You know, think about these that are baptized. Jenny. Judson. You've made a proclamation. You've waved a flag today. A public flag. you said, this is my team. This is my army. This is my captain. This is my king. This is my Lord. You think Satan doesn't push back against that? Some of you have... Made commitments to serve of late. You say, hey, "I want to step into the, I to step into the ministry. I am going to step into the mission field. I'm going, to, I'm going to do something." And Satan pushes back. Some of you are having some of the best spiritual victories of your life. You're you're you feel like you're peaking. You're you're growing, and God's doing so much in your life. Be ready for Satan to push back. He hates God. He hates the image of God in you. He hates the church. He hates the truth. He'll do everything he can to to destroy it. To set it back. Collectively, personally, individually. Think of Jesus even. When Jesus was baptized. A public coronation, if you will. And the Spirit descends on Him. The Bible says like a dove and the voice of God speaks. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. What happens immediately? Jesus goes into the wilderness where He's tested and tempted. Satan pushes back at those times and places where we most are responding to what God is doing in our lives. And so Satan pushes back here. Satan is defending a kingdom here. He's defending his own kingdom. That's what's happening in the book of Acts. We know the mission is this, that you're going to be my witnesses here, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. You're going to penetrate paganism. You're going to penetrate occultism. You're going to penetrate atheism. You're going to penetrate multiple religious systems and you're going to take this to the end of the earth. This is a kingdom that Satan is defending. You know, Satan is still working the same strategy today, pushing back against the church. There's more persecution of Christianity in the world in 2022 than in any other time in history. Worldwide, internationally, there's more difficulty in being a Christian today than in any time we've ever known. There's greater persecution of the church, real persecution. Not the sort of thing that we see that's just political or social or cultural like we see in America, the pushback, the, the tide that's swinging against the church, the antagonism, the mockery, the accusations of bigotry, things like that. No, I'm talking about hard persecution, imprisonment, financial ruin, death even. This is where we are. This is what Satan is doing. And if we wrongly assess what's happening in the world, if we wrongly assess what's happening in our own culture, we might be tempted to think we're losing. Oh no, what do we do? The tide is turning against us. How will we defend ourselves? And we'll go into this defensive mode. We'll go into this fallback mode. Let's just gather what we have. Let's try to keep it together. Let's try not to lose anymore. And let's assume a retreat status. That's not our mission. Our mission is this, to be a prevailing church. That's why Jesus said to the disciples, He said, the gates of hell will not prevail against this church. He didn't say hell will not prevail against the gates. So run behind those walls, get behind those gates and lock them tight. Hell won't be able to break through there and get in. No, He says, as you advance from here to here to here to the ends of the earth, Satan can't stop you. So don't wrongly assess what's happening in the world. Our sovereign God is still in control, and He's working His purposes. And don't you know, not by speculation, but by divine proclamation, we know that God uses persecution, difficulty, hardship for His glory and for the advancement of the gospel. This is exactly what Jesus said would happen. Consider Luke chapter 21. Verses 12 through 13. I'm going to say that slowly because sometimes I say these passages quickly and somebody will say, I'd never caught that passage you said. Well, Luke 21, 12 through 13. Write that down because it's an awesome passage. It's a challenge. It's an eye opener, but it's real. Jesus is speaking of the end. It's a prophetic passage, future tense, when the end will come. But he says, Before all of this, before this great end, they will lay their hands on you. And they will persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. Listen, that's the reality. Before the end comes, it doesn't get better. It gets more difficult. So steady yourself. Ready yourself. Verse 13. This will be your opportunity to witness. What the world seems as a defeating strategy will in fact be a God-ordained opportunity to advance. In this persecution, advance. Now listen, I'm not speaking just in broad terms, though I am speaking broadly. I'm speaking of what God's going to do through the church in these last days. I'm also speaking of your life. Let's bring it down to a personal level for a moment. The hardships that you face, the difficulties that you go through, the struggles that you might find yourself in today, if you wrongly assess those, absence the sovereignty of God, absence the goodness of God, absence the promise of God that for those that love Him and are called according to His purpose, He's causing everything to work together. If you remove those things from the equation, you're going to come up with a wrong result. But when you put those back in, when you factor those back in, then you might better be able to see that what God is doing in your life is opportunity for His glory And the witness of the gospel even in hardship. That this has been God's plan from the beginning. In response to Satan's persecution, God uses that persecution to advance the gospel. The early church is soon going to be scattered. That's a hint for what's coming in the book of Acts. He told them to go from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. I've said that three times now, so you should have that part. They don't go. And he uses the attacks of the enemy the persecution of the enemy, to disperse them. This is for His advance. This is what God is doing. One pastor said this, God rules over the sufferings of the church and He calls them to spread spiritual power and the joy of faith in a lost world. It's not His only way, but it does seem to be a frequent way. God spurs the church into mission by the suffering she endures. Be ready for that. So, as Satan pushes back, persecution comes. Satan defending his kingdom, how does the church respond? They respond with faith, not fear. God, we're going to go to you. We're going to trust you. And they prayed for boldness. We saw that, remember, as Reagan spoke. And last week, we see they begin to pray for boldness, that God will keep doing what you're doing. God, God don't stop. We trust you. You're going to do what you choose to do. You're the constant. You're the reliable one. God is always on mission. He never stops. He doesn't relent. Father God, may we not relent now. May we continue to speak with boldness. As you do signs and wonders, may we continue to speak with boldness your name. And God responds powerfully. And what did He do? The place where they were praying was shaken, physically shaken. That doesn't mean everybody had goosebumps and warm feelings and fuzzy emotions when they left. God thundered there. God was telling them, "You're on my mission. You're on my team. You're advancing my kingdom, and my kingdom is a winning kingdom. So despite opposition and persecution, catch this, the early church was thriving. They were thriving. Now, I've got a lot to put into this message, and I'm already looking at my window of time shrinking around. I don't know how that happens every Sunday. But I don't want you to miss this point. We get so defeatist sometimes. Oh, it's so hard to be a Christian now. It's so difficult. It's never never been this hard to be a Christian. That may be true today in places like Saudi Arabia or Iraq or China or Canada, but it's not true yet here. And we're not facing the same sort of things they were facing. Listen, we can thrive. Darkness gives a great opportunity for light to shine. And this great rebellion that we see in our culture today, a rebellion not just against morals, against traditional values, but a rebellion against God Himself, God the Creator, a rebellion against His very order of things, male and female, husband and wife, family, etc. This is a shining and unique opportunity for us to say, this is the truth. This is who God is. This is what God expects of us. This is what following God allows for anyone who will surrender to Him. It's an opportunity. So despite opposition and persecution, they're thriving. Look at verse 32 of Acts chapter 4. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. How good does that sound? They were one heart and soul. No one said that any of the things that belonged to Him was His own. But they had everything in common. This is not a forced communism. This is not a commune. This is people who recognize God. God as owner, them as stewards, and each other as brothers and sisters. And they had genuine unity, not feigned unity, genuine unity, genuine care for one another, a genuine sense that your interests are my interests. We're in this together. Now, maybe, maybe, and this is just speculation on my part, maybe you and I will never get there until persecution rises up enough to force it. Until the times are harsh enough where we realize we better be together. We better stick together. We better take care of one another. We better love one another. Maybe only persecution can create this. I'd like to think that's not the case. I'd like to think the Spirit of God at work in us could create that sort of unity where we can say we are of one heart and one soul. We have different personalities and we have different preferences. We have different perspectives on things, but we have something in common that's so far superior to that. And it's not our lot in life It's not our station in society. It's not our political affiliation. It's who we are in Christ and what God has called us to be and do. It's the mission that's bigger than any of our occupations or preoccupations. This is who we are in Christ. So they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was power behind it. The apostles weren't preoccupied with petty conflict. That's going to come. Acts chapter 6. They weren't occupied with superfluous things. They were occupied with the most important thing. Let's testify the resurrection of Jesus. Let's let's let people know, this Jesus that you crucified, guess what? He was raised. We saw Him. He sits at the right hand of the Father now. He's interceding for us. And one day He's coming back. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. These are what we might call free will offerings. Free will offerings. Not mandated. Not required. But yet out of love for one another, they said, here's something we have, here's something that we can give for the sake of everyone else. An example of that sort of giving was an early hero in the church named Barnabas. Verse 36, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which you probably know, As son of encouragement, Barnabas the encourager, Barnabas, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him, and he brought the money, and he laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, the reason we know something about Barnabas is we're about to see a contrast here. This is what Barnabas did. He's not unique in it. We know that from the text. Just an example of it. One such man was a good and godly upright man in the church and said, I've got something I can sell. I've got something I can give. I've got something I can offer, and he did it, laying it at the apostles' feet. Doesn't mean he gave it to the apostles; it means he gave it to the church, and they were administering it as necessary. So here's what's happening, and I want this is such a critical statement. It's becoming clear, although he's not relented from this strategy in two thousand years, it's becoming clear that the satanic strategy of opposition via persecution is not really working. In in fact, in, in spite of the opposition and persecution, the church is only rising up in prayer, growing in faith, and increasing in boldness, and God's grace is spreading. And Satan begins a little shift in the strategy. If he can't, and he still cannot, defeat the church from the outside, if he can't do it through the government, if he can't do it through the false religious leaders, if he can't do it through the culture all around them, he's going to have to try a different tact. And that tact is to attack it from the inside. Listen to what I'm saying. Satan still can't defeat God's church, God's people, the body of Christ from the outside. His most successful attacks are inside out. They're inside out. Over the years of teaching a membership class for new people coming into the class, Dan does most of that now. But over the years I've taught that class, one thing I've said regularly, and I say it often now when people are coming to dinner with the pastor, if you were to ask me, what's the biggest problem? What's the biggest struggle? What's the biggest issue for the church in America today? I will tell you my take is this, and I think it's easy. I think our biggest problem in the church today is unsaved church members, it's lost church members, it's those who play the game, learn the parts, have the semblance of something but not the power of it, and light doesn't mix with darkness. And there's no fellowship to be had with unbelievers. And yet, at the most critical level, who we are, our body, our family, unbelief is a destructive power. If he can't do it from the outside, he does it from the inside. Look at chapter 5. Chapter 5 has a huge transitional word. We just talked about the unity and the generosity, the camaraderie. The example of Barnabas the encourager. Chapter 5, verse 1 starts with, but, but, Everybody in the church wasn't Barnabas. Now there's some other types in the church. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias... Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down. And breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose, wrapped him up, carried him out, buried him. No honor, no typical funeral procession, quick, sudden, disposed of. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. What's the question? Is this all of it? And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. i got three big questions I'm going to try to answer in short order, so stick with me. First question is this, what just happened? What just happened? Second, why was God's response here so severe? And three, what lessons should we take from this encounter? Let's start with what just happened. And again, let me set the stage without too much detail because I think it's pretty plain in the story. And I think you can put the pieces together. It's clear that what the church was doing was supporting one another, and taking care of one another. And some people were bringing things and selling it. Now, when Barnabas sold his property, it didn't say that Barnabas sold everything that he had and gave it all. He had a piece of property, he sold it, and he gave it. And understanding was pretty clear. Hey, I sold this for this, and I'm going to give this to the church. Now, when Ananias had some property, there was no odd equation or rule in the church that says if you sell it for... $100. You must give $100. No, you could easily have said, hey, I sold this property for X number of coins, shekels, silver, whatever, and I'm giving this much from it. And that would be a great and gracious gift. After all, this is voluntary. But Ananias wanted to be like Barnabas. He, he wanted to appear as righteous, as good, as a son of encouragement like Barnabas. It's a grand deception, and it makes, it's clear in the text that they both conspired to do this so what happened is this couple conspired to deceive the church they wanted the respect of barnabas but they really had the heart of judas judas who was an insider judas who played the part judas who knew the roles judas who at the end as a betrayer whose heart was filled by dominated by controlled by who satan it it was satan that led judas to do what he did they wanted to be like barnabas on the outside, they wanted that kind of respect. Man, how cheap is that? I want you to think of me this way. I don't want you to know what's really in here. Man, that's, a, that's the height of hypocrisy. And again, I'm not trying to stomp on anyone's toes today. But if your concern is much more about what the people sitting around you think about you, the people in your life group, the people you encounter when you walk through the doors, than what God thinks about you, you're already much more like Ananias than you are like Barnabas. If my concern is more about my reputation than my character, I'm already much more like Ananias than I am like Barnabas. Much more like Judas than I am like Jesus. I read this interesting story, a pastor that I've read a number of things about and I have his commentary, it's a devotional commentary on Genesis. I love him. Uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse, he pastored the uh, 10th Avenue Baptist Church in Philadelphia for, well, three decades or more. And it's interesting, in his church, he would not allow them, for the whole tenure of his ministry, he would not allow them to sing the third verse of At Calvary. would not allow them to sing it at church. The third verse of At Calvary. Do you know the third verse? Now I've given to Jesus everything. He said, we're not going to sing that here. Lest it not be true of any of us who sing it. That we don't stand before God and each other and lie to the Holy Spirit. So they never sang the third verse. And yet here these proclaim, I've given it everything. Yes, this is everything. Now God enabled Peter to discern the deception. But understand there's still grace here, right? Three hours later, the wife comes in. He gives her an opportunity. He quizzes her directly. He asks her specifically. He tests the very point of their connivance. The scheme. Simple question, just want to know this, does that gift represent everything that you sold it for? And she says, oh yes, this is everything. It became very clear then that this was not a God-honoring gift. This was a self-glorifying, self-serving gift. They lied to the church, and catch this, when they lied to the church, what does the scripture say? What does that equate that with? They were lying to God. Maybe consider this for a minute. Maybe? In the first century, the first century church saw church pretty differently than you and I do. Church got no authority over me. Nobody there can tell me what to do. If I don't like it, I'll just leave. I'll go somewhere else. I'll go where I like the songs. I'll go where the guy preaches less. I'll go to the children's ministries better. I'll go where the room is more whatever. And the list just goes on and on and on. I don't think a single person who was true in that church was a consumer. I think every single one who was true was a disciple. They lied to the church and God judged them immediately. It's not a curse that Peter put on them. Peter was just acting in a prophetic way. God had given him the insight to see and speak. And he did. But it was God who carried it out. Second question, why then was God's response so severe? Why was God's response so severe? Let's start here. Make no mistake about it. This is a spiritual attack against the church. We should not reduce this, not that this is insignificant. We should not reduce this to lying. Well, He just, he just lied. He fudged a little. Not that any sin is a sin that doesn't require a response from God. Not that God doesn't take any sin as rebellion against his character and self. But this was a spiritual attack against the church. Satan had infiltrated. And God's response is decisive here. And their sin was very serious in that it strikes at the core. And here's an important word for you. And I'm not just trying to nerd you out here. It's an important word because it's the first time it appears in the book of Acts. It's a word some of you, many of you, have probably heard for the church, ecclesia. Ecclesia, the called out ones, the ones called out from the world to Christ. A word that would be used again and again in the book of Acts to describe the church, the ecclesia. This is the first time we see it. This is a sin against the ecclesia, the called out ones. Again, keep in mind what was there the unity and the trust and the love. And the camaraderie and the sharing. Do you not see how this sin just rips right at the heart of that? All of a sudden now we can't trust one another. We don't know who's legit and who's not among us. We don't know who's playing a game. Who's who's just a facade or a fake. All of a sudden the unity and the fellowship and the camaraderie and the strength is attacked. That's what was happening here. No, no, no. We will be true. We will be a real church. There's no place for this. This strikes at the heart of everybody in that church. That sin wasn't just a sin against Peter or the apostles. It was a sin against the body of Christ. It strikes at the heart of who we are. It's one of the first instances we see of church discipline. Why should a church exercise discipline? Because public sins that deny the lordship of Christ, deny the teachings of the church, deny the things that we stand for and agree on and the things that we hold each other accountable to and support each other in, when those sins strike at us and they're not repented of, and people don't turn from it, and they live in a way that's contrary to what we say and what we teach and what we believe and what God expects of us, that's not just a sin that's private and personal. That's not just between them and God. That strikes at the heart of the church. We must be true. We must be God's people. I think God is purifying His people in the days in which we live. I think we're seeing a great shaking. It's God shaking the tree. It's God shaking off the casual, the indifferent, the carnal, the false. I believe God is doing that. I believe that was the prophetic intent from the beginning. I think when when the things really get fired up in this world, and the persecution gets intense, the true church will clearly emerge. And everything else will fade when it's costly and painful, and, and there's no social profitability, no financial profitability, no relational profitability from it. You'll see a, a great scattering. I talk to, to pastors all the time from here and from the area where I once served, and friends I have in other places serving. Man, how have you guys recovered from COVID? You know, we're, we just never recovered from COVID. God even used something like that to shake the church. People not returning. People staying away. Sin is serious. It attacks the core of ecclesia. And so what does God do? God does sanctifying discipline in response. This is a sanctifying discipline of God. What do I mean by sanctifying? It's the work of God wherein He deals decisively with sin, rooting it out for the sake of holiness, for His glory, for the good of the church, and for the legitimacy of the mission. Sanctifying discipline. This must be removed. And it must be removed in such a way that everybody sees it. So that everybody learns from it. So that everybody lives in reaction to it and doesn't forget it. It's a sanctifying discipline. It's the hand of God not in unbridled wrath, it's not not God just losing his temper. Losing is cool. It's it's not God just going nuts on them all of a sudden. You know, sometimes as parents, our discipline is not exactly sanctifying, is it? Let's be honest. The worst discipline I ever did for my kids growing up is when I was angry. When they had so ticked me off or so embarrassed me or so pushed me over the edge that I responded. Sanctifying discipline doesn't do that. Sanctifying discipline says for the sake of you all. This must happen, and that's what happened. What are some lessons we should take from this? Don't look at the clock. Look up here. Focus. (laughs) What lessons should we take from this? Well, one we said throughout the service, I hope you've been hearing this theme, God knows our hearts. It's the heart of man. And our hearts are always the real issue. Always. Hearts are always the real issue. Why we do what we do. Not what we do. Why we do what we do, that's the real issue. With enough pressure on you, you can modify your behavior. And I appreciate Patrick's testimony that the honesty of that. You can modify your behavior. I drive with a little GPS because I'm not good with directions or sense of direction. So I use Waze. Waze will also give you little notices sometimes if people are helpful on there. Policeman, report it ahead. When I get that little notification, I modify my behavior. (laughs) My heart says 75. (laughs) My head says 55. With enough pressure on us collectively, we can modify behavior. and We can do that for a long time. But that's not salvation. Salvation is a change of the heart. It's a change of what we desire. Why we do what we do and for whom we do it. God cares about the heart. And because He cares about the heart, He must then hate hypocrisy. Now again, this is a whole message on its own. Jesus spoke so much about hypocrisy. He defined hypocrisy, I believe, in Matthew chapter 15, verses 7 and 8. Where He said this, He said, You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when He said, and listen to this definition, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. That's hypocrisy. And later on, for his disciples' sake, he described the danger of hypocrisy. In Luke 12, 1, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Why did he call The hypocrisy of the Pharisees, leaven. Because that sort of thing spreads. That sort of thing gets in everything and everybody. That's what leaven does. It penetrates the whole batch. It penetrates the whole loaf. Beware of this leaven. Because it's a lot easier to pretend to be than to be. It's a lot easier to be a Judas than to be a Barnabas. So beware of that leaven. It's always, always present. The threat of it is always present. So beware of that leaven of hypocrisy. But there are some other lessons too. And these are bigger and will take more time than I have this morning to explain, but I want to at least present them. Maybe our understanding of God is more fanciful than it is biblical. You ever thought about that? Maybe you have this fanciful view of God, this God that you concocted in your own mind. The God of pop culture and contemporary understanding. The God who serves us, loves us the same no matter what, expects little to nothing of us, is essentially benign and powerless. He's, he's that grandfather who gives awesome gifts at Christmas, but other than that, he expects nothing, asks nothing, and the few times that you do call, he's just happy to hear from you. But that's not a picture of the biblical God. And don't fall prey to that ancient heresy called Marcionism that suggests that God in the Old Testament is not the same God in the New Testament. Because nothing could be farther from the truth. What staves off the judgment of God that we so often see exert in the Old Testament is the grace of Christ. The reason that you and I are safe from the judgment of a God who rightfully and wrathfully responds to our sin is because Christ bore his wrath and gives us his righteousness. So when you look at the God of the Old Testament, don't think he doesn't exist. Be, God, be glad that God has set you aright with Himself through Christ. And you're on the right side of Him. In Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1-5, through 5, we see a, a group of people marauding as worshipers, professing to be true, but the Bible says they offered strange fire before the Lord. You can read the passage. For time's sake, I won't go into explanation. God destroyed them for their false worship. He was setting a precedence for the temple in those days, my worship must be true, for I am a holy God. An understanding of a holy God is critical for our worship. It was precedence setting. Later on, when the children of Israel came into the land of promise, they were given very clear instructions about what to do and not to do. And you had a man, you had a man in Joshua chapter 7 who denied that promise. He was stoned with stones for stealing, his name was Achan. Joshua said to him, why did you bring this trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today for your sin, for your defiance against God. Maybe we don't see God as we ought to. Second, maybe our paradigm of church is more secular than it is sacred. You know, this model that we have, how a church works, what a church is for, that really serves me, my needs, my preferences, my desires. That's a secular understanding of church. It doesn't align with Scripture. The church of the New Testament was a sacred church. In fact, the sort of language that we see in the interactions of God with that church suggests that the early church was now functioning in the same way that the temple functioned in the Old Testament. This is the place where God dwells with His people by virtue of His Holy Spirit. And the same demands of holiness that were in place in the temple are now in place for us as God's people. We are His temple. And maybe our view of sin if we're real honest with ourselves, it's more harmless than it is fatal. And that's one of Satan's strategies. Let's diminish the seriousness of sin and so simultaneously devalue the worth of grace. If sin isn't a big deal, then neither is forgiveness. Neither is grace. Grace. And what we don't understand is that God's judgment over sin actually is grace. That worse than God's judgment, worse than being under God's judgment for sin, or God responding and punishing sin, would be for God to let us go in our sin. Because sin kills. Sin, when it's finished, brings death. We have this weird idea that it's just God stopping us from enjoying things. Okay, God, for your sake, we'll do it. We don't know why, but we'll stop. No, God's judgment over sin is a rescue from sin. Now, obviously, Ananias and Sapphira were judged fatally for their sin, but in their judgment, others were rescued. So what's the result of all this that happened? Look at verse 11. I'm going to wrap up. Verse 11. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all those who heard of these things. Fear is not a word we very often associate with our understanding of or our interactions with God anymore. That's not the first thing that typically comes to our minds. And this is not just the sort of fear that sends people cowering and running for cover. This is the sort of fear that gives them just the slightest glimpse of the awesomeness and holiness of God. It's the same sort of fear that we see throughout Scripture whenever there's an unusual revelation of God. When the angels appeared before the birth of Christ, what did they say? What did they say to those shepherds? Don't be afraid. Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Why would they say that? They didn't show up like a parade. They didn't appear like a birthday party. This is awesome, frightful, terrifying, because it's a small glimpse of the holiness, the awesomeness of God. And it creates in us a sense of wonder, amazement, reverence, submission, fear. Why is this sort of fear a good thing? The Bible says that godly fear deters sin. I'm sure it did there. Don't you think that was a course adjustment for the church? It deters sin. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. Godly fear also prolongs life. Certainly the opposite took their life, but fear prolongs life. The fear of the Lord prolongs life, Proverbs 10.27 says. Godly fear gives us security. We rest now in the awesomeness of God, that God is sovereign over things. and the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, the Bible says, and his children have a refuge. The fear of the Lord leads to life, Proverbs 19.23 says. Godly fear gives us wisdom. Psalm 111, verse 10. I got those. I'm a little bit, uh, whatever that word is where I get things backwards. It's Psalm 11.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Right living Right application of things that I know comes from a right fear of God. Godly fear invokes God's compassion. God's compassionate toward those who fear Him, those who would flaunt Him, those who would defy Him, lie to Him like Ananias and Sapphira. No, there's no compassion. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. And godly fear ensures God's generosity. Oh, fear the Lord, you as saints, for those who fear Him have no lack. What did it say about the early church? None of them was lacking anything. Why? They feared the Lord. They honored Him. It wasn't just people's generosity. It was God's generosity flowing through people. God was blessing them because they feared the Lord. That's why God dealt so decisively here. In conclusion, the true wonder here is really not... It's not that God killed these two people. The true wonder is that any of us live. That's the true wonder. That we're not for the grace of God. If we are not in Christ, listen to what I'm saying, and I'm about to wrap up. I see y'all shuffling your stuff, so hang tight. I see you. Listen, if you are not in Christ right now, God has every right to call in that sin debt anytime He pleases. The wages of sin is death. It is the prerogative of God to call in that debt. That's why we celebrate that our debt has been paid in Christ. But if your debt has not been paid, can you say God is not just in calling for it? And though you and I live as God's children, for all of you who do, though we are a family, God nonetheless remains a holy God. Now, I'm going to give you one last perspective. This is sort of like the rest of the story. So who was it? Who was the catalyst of this event? Who was it that God gave that prophetic insight to that saw this happen right in front of his very face? Peter, right? Peter. And Peter was right there in all of this. You think that didn't have a profound effect on him and his life and ministry? Later on, he'd be talking to the church that now has begun to spread to the ends of the earth as Paul's writing his letter i mean as Peter is writing his first letter he's writing it to a church that's now spread into what we would consider turkey today what we would call turkey and he writes this in 1st peter 1:17 if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds if that's you if you call on God as father conduct yourselves with fear fear to honor him as god the worst thing we can do with god is to treat him casually indifferently powerlessly today i pray that you respond to him in a righteous and rightful fear that i may live not because i'm lost but because i'm saved that i want to honor him and please him and be honest and true with him that i want to be part of a church that's true and real that I want to live legitimately before Him, the One who knows my heart. And if I'm not a Christian yet, well, that's a whole different kind of fear. One that can be alleviated at the foot of the cross where forgiveness is found, where the debt is paid, where life begins. Let's pray. Father God, move our hearts to respond rightly today. Lord, send us out differently today by Your Word, by Your Spirit, Father. Father. May we live in a way that pleases You. You have promised us, if we are believers, that You are at work in us, giving us the will and the ability to do what's pleasing to You. So Father, do that now for us. Do that now for every believer. And if there is an unbeliever in this room, someone who might hear this word today, Father, I pray that out of grace and mercy towards them you would stir up in their hearts a necessary fear a fear that recognizes your awesome holiness with zero tolerance for sin and disobedience and rebellion and that you would press impress upon them so deeply their need for forgiveness So that they would see your mercy and grace so great that, like so many of us, they would say, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And they would find that you are, that you are. And that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and you are just and you will forgive our sins and you will cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So, Father, Move us today according to our need for our good and your glory. I pray in Jesus' name.